Hello and welcome to the fifth in a series of podcasts to promote the Reintroduction and Rewilding Summit, which will be held on the 10th of April this year. The summit is run by the Birds of Pool Harbour, the charity dedicated to educating people on the stunning variety of bird life in one of the country's most picturesque locations and the self-isolating bird club a virtual space for wildlife watchers and enthusiasts set up by broadcasters Chris Peckham and Megan McCubbin. My name is Charlie Moores, and in our last episode I spoke with Sarah King, a highly experienced ecologist with Rewilding Britain, a charity working to protect, restore and regenerate species-rich mosaics of habitats. They say on their website that rewilding helps reverse biodiversity loss and bring back the abundance of Britain's wildlife. Sarah is spearheading the development and project management of the charity's new rewilding network. Today I'm speaking with Dr Jose Tavares, director of the Vulture Conservation Foundation, or VCF. The VCF is committed to the conservation, restoration and protection of vultures as umbrella species for their natural habitats throughout Europe. And they have been extremely effective and successful in that commitment. Against the global trend of decline, vulture populations across Europe are up, in some cases dramatically so. During the upcoming conversation, Jose and I discuss the work of the VCF, the threats that these magnificent birds still face in Europe and the measures that are being taken to mitigate those threats, the logistical difficulties that reintroduction programmes need to overcome, and in a somewhat partisan nod to a UK audience, Vigo, the bearded vulture that roamed southern Britain last summer and whether wild vultures will ever be regular here. First though, I asked Jose a question that I'm sure he's had to answer many, many times. While not everyone likes vultures, they are fantastic and very important birds, aren't they? Indeed, vultures are are, are fantastic and, uh, above all, very needed uh, parts of uh, the uh, Earth's ecosystems. I know that they don't get a good press. Uh, we've all uh, we've all read in the news about you know the vulture politicians, the vulture funds. Usually, that means bad things simply because vultures, by by nature of their ecology, are usually associated with death. But that that also makes them extremely useful and important, unique, irreplaceable, because they are nature's cleanup screw. They clean our countryside from uh, uh, dead carcasses. And that is extremely important because dead carcasses can be a problem in terms of, uh, you know, uh, transmission of diseases for bad smells and, uh, and, yeah. and, and so forth. And, and, and vultures uh, are extremely good. And in fact, they, they are made to clean a carcass in, in a few hours and they do so admirably. So uh, they really play a very important role in, uh, in nature's ecosystems. I really don't want to take us off topic so early on in the conversation, Jose. Um, you and the Vulture Conservation Foundation focus on the situation in Europe. But I do remember reading that when Asia's vultures crashed because of the terrible impact of the veterinary anti-inflammatory drug diclofenac, there was a noticeable rise in stray dogs, which caused problems right across India. Indeed. And uh, we see that also in, in, in some places in, um, in Europe where, uh, where uh, in the past where vultures uh, went rarer, 
other scavengers, notably uh, corvids, uh, foxes, stray dogs, have increased. And that, uh, in India in particular, the example that you mentioned, represented a, a, a very big problem because uh, these stray dogs are associated with rabies. So there was this uh, spike in, in, in rabies cases with uh, you know, a, a very heavy cost in terms of uh, public health uh, and for, for the economy uh, because of the crash and the collapse of the vultures in the Indian subcontinent indeed. Yeah. As I said, um, Vulture Conservation Foundation, VCF, mainly focuses on Europe. So what species do we have here and how are they doing compared with, say, Asian and African vulture populations? Yes, we, we do have got uh, four of the 23 vulture species that occur in, uh, in the world. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the example of Asia. Um, and, you know, and, and I will speak, of course, about our work in Europe. But I just would like to let you know that, in fact, Europe is today the only uh, good news story in a, in a rather depressing context regarding vulture conservation. Yeah. V- uh, vultures in Asia have crashed, uh, declined by 99% on the verge of extinction because of the anti-inflammatory uh, drug veterinary diclofenac. Vultures in Africa are doing extremely badly because of a widespread poisoning crisis. Poisoning that is not directed at vultures mostly, is directed at carnivores that kill the cattle that uh, many uh, populations, human populations, depend on, and and therefore people want to get rid of the carnivores, uh, and vultures are uh, a collateral victim of of that human-wildlife conflict. But populations of vultures in Africa are declining very fast. Seven species of African vultures are now critically endangered or endangered at global level, and there are vast areas of the African continent, which before was renowned for abundant vultures, without almost any vultures. The same situation is happening in the Americas with with their vultures, the condors, the Andean condor, and and so on, uh, where, again, some species are, are, are declining very, very fast. It's only in Europe where we actually see, and we have seen in the last 30 to 40 years, very good news coming from the four species of vultures that that occur in in, in Europe. These populations have indeed uh, mostly uh, recovered. They they have grown, they have recolonized, they have been reintroduced uh, into uh, former historical uh, historical range. It is mostly a success, a conservation success story, and does give some hope uh, that if uh, the same key ingredients that we've put into vulture conservation in Europe are applied elsewhere, we could eventually revert this dramatic global situation. But coming back to the to the vulture species in Europe, we have got four. Uh, only one of them is, is, is a migratory vulture, uh, and it's actually the, the, the smallest of the species, uh, what's called in, in, in English the Egyptian vulture. This is, of the four species, the only one that is still uh, not out of trouble. It is also the rarest in uh, global terms of the four species of, of vultures. Uh, it is classified as endangered at global level. Uh, it is a, a vulture, as I mentioned, migratory. It spends the winter in uh, in Africa and then comes to uh, to southern Europe to um, to breed during the spring and uh, and the summer. Um, then we do have got the other three species, which are well mostly sedentary, even though uh, one or two of them have got 
partly migratory populations. And these are the griffon vulture, the most abundant. This is the vulture that most people see when they go to, to the Mediterranean uh, areas with vultures. Right, yeah. uh, in southern France, in Spain, uh, there's now 30,000 pairs of, uh, of griffon vultures in Spain. They are, they are reaching historical uh, maximum populations. So it, it is really the, the, the generalist vulture, the, the typical vulture, uh, head and neck without feathers, the, the most abundant vulture. The Cinereus vulture, uh, sometimes also called the European black vulture, the biggest of them all. They're very big birds, aren't they? It is extremely big. <laughs> it's extremely big it, with a wingspan of over three meters. Yeah. It is impressive. If you if you really see a vulture flying, uh, one of these vultures flying overhead at close range, it is it is huge. Um, again, um, good news story. Once upon a time, it was down to 250 pairs in uh, only Spain and a very small isolated population in Greece. It's European population now uh, has over 3,000 pairs. So it has increased from 250 to 3,000 pairs in the last three decades. It has recolonized Portugal. Uh, it has been reintroduced successfully in France. It is being uh, reintroduced in Bulgaria. So you see again these uh, expanding populations, increasing populations, uh, increasing uh, area of, uh, of, of occurrence. And finally, uh, the fourth species. I might be biased, but I would say the most beautiful, the most spectacular, the birded vulture. Yeah. Uh, it is spectacular it, uh, and unique uh, because it, it occupies a unique niche, both in terms of habitat and in terms of, uh, of its feeding ecology. It's a, it's a high, high mountain species that normally lives in the, the high mountain chains of Europe, the Pyrenees, the Alps. Uh, the Balkan mountains, uh, some mountains that occur on some of the Mediterranean islands. Um, and this bird has specialized on eating bones. 80% of the diet of an adult birded vulture is composed of, of, of dried bones. Uh, incredibly, um, dried bones, the marrow of the bones, keep uh, its nutritious value. In for several years, uh, even when the bone is under, you know, under under the sun or under the elements, and these birds have specialized in uh, finding and eating these bones. When the bones are too big, they actually uh, pick them up and drop them over rocks to break them into um, smaller pieces. And hence, their alternative name, uh, the bone breaker, <laughs> uh, they are actually called, called bone breaker in, uh, in, in some of the European languages, quebranta huesos in, in Spanish, which means exactly that, bone breaker. In some regions of France, they are called casser d'eau, which ex means exactly this, the bone breaker. And they then in, ingest these bones, in you know, uh, and 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 obviously these bones have to be degraded very fast, and they are uh, in their extremely acidic stomach, yeah. so that then the, the you know the nutrients are are absorbed uh, by uh, by the, the the blood and 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 so on. This this bird is indeed a symbol of the high mountains. In many ways, it's an, an umbrella species for a very special type of ecosystem, the alpine zones, the, yeah. the, the, the mountain, the high mountain zones of our European continent. And, and it's quite, uh, quite impressive. Uh, it is also, uh, you know, arguably, and again, I, I, I know that I may, I, I may be biased, uh, uh, <laughs> an extremely beautiful bird. I think you uh, have every right to be biased, Jose. You're doing an awful <laughs> lot of work on these birds. If you, if you ever see 
the, uh, if you ever, you know, peer into an eye of an adult birded vulture, it has got this beautiful red ring. I, I think you'll never forget. Yeah. It is, it is indeed a special species. And for the VCF, it is very special because it is our main uh, focus species. We work with these four European vulture species that I've just described, uh, even though uh, we pay a lot of attention to, to, to birded vultures, and we've been uh, in the last 20, 30 years leading uh, several projects across the continent to reintroduce them to some of the European mountain chains, where indeed uh, now uh, they they are increasing and are being reestablished, partly due to the to our efforts and to the work of the the Vulture Conservation Foundation, the VCF. That's brilliant. So they're all occupying slightly different ecological niches. Are they ever found together on, on the same animal carcass? Yes, indeed. And, and increasingly so because their populations, uh, as I mentioned, are increasing. Uh, it, uh, it used to be extremely rare to actually find a place where you would find these four species together because they had been uh, you know, exterminated from some places. And, but now there are actually uh, several places uh, in France, uh, in Spain, and we hope very soon in the Balkans where these four species uh, can uh, live together. In fact, as you've said, uh, they explore slightly different ecological niches, including food niches. All of them consume dead meat, the carcasses of, of dead animals. Yeah. But evolution, evolution shaped them in such a way that they actually almost come in sequential order so that they explore different parts of the carcass. And one single carcass actually provides for these four species. Usually, uh, it all starts with the griffon vultures, the most abundant species, the one that have got really the, the powerful beak, uh, finding the carcass and opening up the carcass using its very powerful beak and its featherless head and neck, so penetrating in the, the wounds of the dead animal and opening up the carcass and eating the muscle and, and also some of the, uh, the, the organs of, of the carcass. In this effort, the, the, the griffon vulture very often breaks apart the carcass and there come the Cinereus vulture and the Egyptian vulture, which like to feed on smaller portions, smaller bits uh, of, of the carcass, cartilaginous material, tendons and so on. And finally, when most of the soft tissue is gone, and when there are only bones, there should come the birdie vulture, vulture, which basically eats the bones, the, wow. the dry bones. And a carcass of an animal can be stripped clean and eaten in a few hours, should the, you know, the, 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 the vultures be there in sufficient number to do so. That's such an efficient system, isn't it? I mean, each part of the animal from the meat down to the bone marrow is consumed by one vulture species or another. I mean, that's Absolutely. incredibly efficient. Um, we also potentially have a fifth breeding species in Europe, and that's the repels vulture. Indeed. Uh, increasingly so, lots of observations. We are waiting at any moment um, successful breeding by uh, a pair of Rupel's vultures. They've already attempted to breed with griffon vultures. They are a species very close uh, to, to griffon vultures. There's been a, a few attempts of you know, mixed couples without, without any success. Um, and this, this happens because um, 
a, a part of the griffon vulture population in, in Europe, particularly in Spain, is migratory. Uh, it, they are mostly sedentary. They stay in Europe all, all year round. But about 20% of, of mostly young birds still leave Europe uh, through Gibraltar to go to North and West Africa. And it's in, in, in the West Africa wintering grounds of griffon vultures that uh, sometimes the, 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 the griffon vultures mix with local African vulture species, including the rupos vultures. And then on their way up in the spring, they actually bring these rupos vultures with them right. uh, into Europe. You know, we know this because, uh, for example, migration is, is closely monitored in, in the Gibraltar Strait uh, with, uh, with yearly counts of, you know, vultures passing and so on. So every year there are um, many observations, you know, 10, 20 observations of rupos vultures coming up to Europe with, with these, these griffon vultures. And then because conditions are mostly positive in Europe, they actually end up staying in Europe. There's, you know, in places there's plenty of food, the threats are, are, are minimized. And therefore, there has been, there's been quite a few observations. Uh, to my knowledge, for example, there's been even groups of five and six rupos vultures seen together. Wow. Uh, in in a, in a couple of places in um, in Iberia. I mean, it's a question of time before we we get this uh, fifth vulture species breeding in Europe. Could this carrier species effect been happening, Jose, for for thousands of years, and rupels have always been coming here, or have conditions in Europe changed in a way that's made movements like this more likely? But perhaps a change in climate or something. I think I think this is a, a natural phenomenon that certainly occurred in the past. Um, the problem was that for 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 the best part of of the twentieth century, this was definitely rarer, and we know this simply because these counts at Gibraltar are now quite old and they go they go back in the past. The problem in in the twentieth century is that of course European uh, vulture populations were were much smaller, and and also the, the you know the, the mortality uh, of of uh, vultures in in Europe was uh, much higher. So, so the conservation situation of vultures in Europe was definitely worse than, than it is now. So what would happen is a lot less European vultures were going to Africa uh, simply because the, the populations were much smaller. Uh, so the, the possibilities of mixing and bringing them up uh, were definitely smaller or lower. Mm-hmm. And, and then when they would arrive in Europe, the, the probability of them getting killed was definitely higher. So, you know, I think that this happened in the past for sure, except that um, the conditions were not there for, for these uh, uh, vagrants uh, to, to survive in sufficient number as to eventually establish a, a new population. Uh, the, the context here is positive. Uh, they can stay. They are, vultures are usually long-lived birds, and therefore their probability of, of long-term survival is, is higher. Can we turn to the threats that vultures face, Jose? You're, you're painting a very positive picture, and you and VCF have worked incredibly hard to head off the sort of threats that have destroyed vultures in Asia. But threats do still exist from poisoning, from habitat loss. Collisions with power lines seem to be in the news more and more these days. Things are probably more positive than I'd realised until I started researching this interview, but threats do still exist. 
Indeed, indeed. Um, threats are the same uh, a little bit everywhere in the world. Um, um, and uh, we do have got a very good picture of the threats um, uh, and their importance, partly because very recently we've actually done um, a huge piece of work uh, that resulted uh, basically a global footprint for vulture conservations globally, which was adopted by the United Nations under one of their conventions called the Convention for Migratory Species, because mm-hmm. we prepared together with a huge number of of other organizations, what's called the Vulture Multi-Species Action Plan, in which we've actually identified, analyzed with the help of hundreds of researchers, field workers, uh, and experts all over the world, exactly what what is killing vultures in in all the different continents on Earth. And, and, And the picture is the same with the difference that in Europe, most of these threats have been in the last decades minimized and mitigated so that the mortality that is occurring in Europe is definitely smaller than what it was, it once was, and therefore the viability of the populations is very positive. But the main threats are, I mean, the, the threat number one worldwide is poisoning. And again, this poisoning is not directed at vultures, it's poisoning directed at uh, usually carnivores, wolves, foxes, jackals in some parts of Europe, uh, by, on one hand, livestock breeders to protect their livestock, and on the other hand, in parts of Europe, also gamekeepers and and hunting managers, which want to protect their game species from being predated by some of these top predators, and therefore they, they still use poison baits. This was a legal, widespread and common tool to manage wildlife uh, until the middle of the, the 20th century all over Europe. And this explains why it is still so widespread, you know, in human behavior. It was legal, you know, for yeah, hundreds sure of years, is. our yeah. our great grandparents and grandparents did it legally. They were even they were even encouraged to do so by the authorities. Obviously, this has got a huge impact. You know, it's not specific. It does not discriminate among species. It kills everything. It can even kill humans because some of these uh, um, poisons that are being used and put on poison baits are extremely toxic to humans. And, you know, and there's been cases in Europe of people getting killed because of that. Kids touching a poison bait and then putting their their, their hands in in the mouth and and, and getting killed. This This is now illegal. Yeah, and, and it is really a focus of, of quite a lot of our work. We are working a lot with enforcement agencies, with the police, with wildlife wardens, with national parks, protected areas, to really phase out or, or, or to, to, to make this a thing of the past. Uh, unfortunately, people still resort to poison baits uh, whenever they've got a problem with, with wildlife. Uh, there is still quite a lot of, of stocks of these poisons uh, from the past uh, stored in in, in the countryside. Here, the enforcement agencies and the governments play a, a huge role. It's a wildlife crime. It needs to be treated as a wildlife crime. There needs to be a proper uh, forensic criminal investigation, uh, uh, identification of suspects, which can be quite tricky and difficult yeah, yeah. Uh, because you know the only evidence you have very often in very remote places in the countryside is the carcass, a rapidly decomposing carcass of vultures or of uh, wolves or foxes that need to be analyzed, the compound determined, and then... Um, and, and, and the problem is that until recently, many authorities faced with other types of crime would 
neglect a little bit this type of environmental crime and would say, okay, well, yeah, yeah, but we don't have the resources to actually do a proper investigation. Absolutely. And because there was never a proper investigation, there was never um, a suspect, there was never uh, a person that was eventually found guilty, uh, you know, in, in, in the courts of justice. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, there was this image of impunity. It doesn't matter, I can do it because, you know, nobody will catch me. No, no Nobody has ever been caught for poisoning wildlife fortunately this is changing and and, and authorities uh, and and you know a part of our work is to work alongside authorities to precisely promote this they are paying more attention uh, and we've seen a radical change once some individuals um, uh, are caught and and uh, convicted people become very 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 careful yeah, and they yeah. you know they, they they will think twice before doing the same so poisoning is still the number one threat Unfortunately, every year we still lose uh, a few vultures, 10, 20, 30 vultures in Europe, 40, depending on, on the years, but uh, to, to, to poisoning events um, in Greece, uh, uh, in Spain, uh, in, in, in Portugal and so on. Yeah. Number two threat is electrocution uh, and collision with the electric uh, infrastructure. Collision is simple to understand, is when vultures fly against cables, either because of you know uh, poor weather, uh, fog, uh, rainy weather, they fly against cables, they, 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 for one reason or the other, they don't see the cable and then they break the wing or they break, uh, you know, they, they, they break the neck. Electrocution is when vultures um, sit on top of uh, electricity pylons yeah. um, and then touch the pylon and, uh, and the line at the same time. Now, uh, this is mostly happening in medium tension lines uh, because obviously in the very high tension lines, which are a problem for uh, for collision, but in the, in the very large high tension lines, the distance between the, the lines is such that vultures cannot cannot really touch them. But in, in smaller uh, medium tension lines that unfortunately are extremely abundant all over Europe. Now, collision and electrocution are rel relatively simple to solve. Electricity pylons can be insulated. It's yeah. just a question of putting some, uh, some uh, uh, you know, isolating material um, in, in an extension coming out of the, 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 the structure so that if the, if the vultures or, or indeed uh, raptors, uh, all, all, all raptors suffer yeah. from, from yeah. electrocution and collision. So if, if a raptor touches the, the wire when it's perched, it doesn't die. And then with collision is relatively simple because there are, you know, anti-collision devices. Uh, you know, we call it bird markers, yeah. uh, flyers, or, or um, that can be put on lines and that, that move and that uh, are a, a, a visual deterrent effect. Uh, they can reduce significantly yeah. the mortality on, on collision. And we're starting to see those measures being taken more and more, aren't we? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And, and, and fortunately, fortunately uh, you know, electricity companies um, are actually engaging with us uh, and, and with other vulture conservation organizations in putting these equipments on the cables. And this is because they also suffer uh, from electrocution and collision because many times there's actually blackouts and problems yeah. with electricity distribution because of electro electrocution of, 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 some, uh, of some birds. Now, they are doing this on a voluntary basis so far. What we are trying to do, uh, and this is our next step, is actually uh, to make them liable to do this uh, whenever they install a new line. So to make this uh, actually a legal requirement rather than only a voluntary, because after all, they, they, you know, they are destroying 
public wealth, public, which is biodiversity. Yeah, um, and therefore, there should be some sort of legal liability. But so far, the collaboration with electricity distribution companies uh, is, uh, is good and positive in many, in many instances. Unfortunately, shooting... And, you know, this might come as a surprise, but we still have got people in Europe that shoot at and kill vultures, uh, which, of course, are legally protected. We had such a case only a few months ago in France where one of our reintroduced birded vultures was, was shot, was killed by what we presume is a hunter. Again, this is completely unacceptable. It's an environmental crime, should be punished. And then two other threats that I would like to um, highlight, uh, veterinary medicines. We've, we've talked about veterinary, veterinary diclofenac. There's, there's some medicines, and, and you know this is still evolving science. There's some veterinary medicines that are given to cattle that can have a negative impact on, on vultures, and one in particular, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs yeah. are very toxic to vultures and can kill vultures. If these are given to cattle, and if these cattle are then enter uh, the vulture food chain, when, you know, because they die in the countryside, and they are eaten by vultures they can be a problem and finally uh, last but not least lead lead shot yeah lead is toxic to to humans lead is toxic to, to all you know uh, animals and, and and that's the reason why we've banned lead from almost everything we've banned lead from petrol we've banned lead from painting uh, we've banned lead from lots of other things that we used to to have in the past because it's 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 toxic to us we have not yet banned lead from hunting ammunition yeah. and what happens is quite a lot of you know lead uh, remains stays in the rests of hunting of hunting animals quite a lot of the Awful, hunting awful uh, of big game, for example, that is killed in, in our countryside is left uh, over for scavengers. And if those scavengers uh, then eat uh, that awful, which is good, uh, you know, because again, they are uh, nature's cleanup crew. The problem is that if they contain lead ammunition, uh, they can actually get lead, you know, it accumulates. And at first starts to have some sublethal effects that probably translates into poor breeding. But then in some cases, actually, uh, the, the levels are can kill vultures. And we are picking up vultures a little bit over all over Europe with high uh, lead uh, levels. There's one solution, which is very simple, substituting lead ammunition by non-lead alternatives that exist, yeah. that are equally effective in terms of ballistics. And this is also one of our major um, lines of work. We are lobbying the European Union for such to, to, to ban lead ammunition. This is not against hunting. Uh, on the contrary, this is for a cleaner, more sustainable hunting. And uh, fortunately, we are starting to have quite a lot of the hunting sector with us, uh, and notably while we are working with the Federation of European Hunters, for example, um, to try uh, to achieve this ban of lead ammunition yeah. and therefore the minimization of these threats to vultures. Yeah. Just a couple of things on that. There certainly are alternatives to lead, including uh, steel, tungsten yeah. and bismuth. And um, lead shot was a factor in limiting the recovery of the California condor, wasn't it? Absolutely, where where lead is still actually a very major threat yeah, uh, yeah. To, to to that to that population to that species there. Yeah. I had read that the EU is close to a ban on lead shot over wetlands. Are you optimistic at all that might lead to a full ban on lead? 
We are working uh, actively on that. Uh, they've decided, the European Union has decided finally after years of lobbying and considering to ban lead shot uh, in wetlands. Yeah. So uh, the decision has been taken. There's now a transition period. In a couple of years' time, it will be, uh, it will be uh, illegal to use lead shot when hunters are, are hunting on, on, on wetlands. And they are considering um, to do the same for bullets, for, for you know, for uh, big game ammunition in the wider countryside in the terrestrial ecosystems indeed we are engaging with the, with that process yeah and one of the reasons lead is such a problem in wetlands is because waterfowl swallow grit to grind food in their gizzards and they swallow lead instead of instead of those small stones which poisons huge numbers of birds every year exactly so um one of the threats that really interests me is coming from food shortages created by EU legislation, which banned dead livestock from being left out in the countryside. I mean, this came up about after BSE or mad cow disease and then the foot and mouth outbreaks. We've created a cleaner countryside, which is presumably having a huge impact on vultures. Indeed, um, indeed. I, I, I mentioned, you know, I, I just mentioned, of course, the direct threats that um, kill vultures. Yeah. There are, yeah. of course, other aspects which are extremely important for the sustainability of the populations. Food is is, is the major one. The, the other one is, of course, nesting habitat. Uh, you know, uh, for example, Cinerus vultures, they nest in old growth trees. So if they don't have those old growth trees, you know, these um, centennial uh, pines, then they will not thrive. But food, food is extremely important and is at, is at the key of several of our conservation programs. This explains also the pattern of evolution of vulture populations in Europe. You know, in the past, when we had a, a very rural society, of course, we had lots of uh, dead animals dying for one reason or the other, uh, and a much more natural system in which the vultures would come. Vultures or other scavengers would come and, and, and would feed on those and pick up those. And with, with um, you know, the industrialization of our countryside, with the industrialization of our uh, farming, with a much more regulatory approach, this ceased to exist uh, because, you know, uh, we, we started to be worried about a number of veterinary things, which then culminated in, in the foot and mouth disease and all the, the very strict regulations that, uh, that were introduced after that, you know, after the, the, the foot and mouth, the, the medical disease and, and, and then the foot and mouth disease and, and so on uh, appeared in our countryside, yeah. it, it became absolutely illegal to leave any dead animal in, in the countryside. All dead animals would need to be picked up. And, and this is still the case in many, in, in many parts of Europe, would need to be picked up and taken to an incinerator to be incinerated. The net result of this is that, of course, scavengers uh, suddenly uh, found out that there was no uh, no food, and and this in part explains uh, the problems that vultures and other scavengers had throughout the 20th century when this pro process of industrialization appeared. What quite a lot of, of, of us conservationists managed to um, to do is to convince the European Union that in some instances and in some cases, some animals could actually be left uh, in the countryside for scavengers to come and, and eat. And therefore, uh, those very, very strict uh, and restrictive veterinary regulations that followed the, the, the mad cow disease and the foot and mouth disease were relaxed as long as there were vultures or other scavengers in, in the places and um, it is now possible 
to actually have either supplementary feeding places where you know you can put animal byproducts in in, in a place for vultures to come and, and feed you know the so-called vulture restaurants or even better because it really mimics uh, you know the natural system leave the animals where they die for vultures to come and eat and this is the situation uh, in Spain this is the situation in some parts of France this is the situation in some parts of uh, of Italy Sardinia in particular where the regulatory framework allows for that and this also explains therefore the explosion of the vulture populations uh, so in in these places uh, livestock breeders when they've got uh, a dead animal they don't need to call the track uh, to take it to the incinerator they yeah. can depending depending on the type of animal but mostly you know pigs sheep uh, goats cows still need to be uh, you know bovine still needs to be collected but but the other the other type of animals can actually be left for scavengers and scavengers come and they actually clean it in a much more sustainable, natural, and cost-effective uh, way than uh, actually the, the industrial process of dealing sure. with, with dead animals. We've made calculations. This represents uh, uh, you know, huge savings in terms of uh, greenhouse gases, because you can imagine uh, you know, a track going through all these uh, you know, rural tracks to collect, you know, a sheep there, three cows here, uh, you know, two goats there, yeah. the, the amount of, of CO2 that is generated. And then also taxpayers' money, because all this costs, all this costs a, a lot of money. And this money uh, either comes from taxpayers, because in some countries this is a public service offered, or it comes from the farmers themselves, because in, in some other countries this is actually coming from the farmers' insurance, so therefore from their, from their, their income. And by actually allowing vultures to do this, uh, we save greenhouse gases and we save, uh, you know, we save money, we save uh, people's money. So it is really um, a very cost-effective system and, and one that we've been, uh, uh, we've been promoting. It's absolutely fascinating to hear the, uh, the range of arguments that scientists like yourself are now presenting to protect vultures. So, you know, leaving goat carcasses out in the wild rather than collecting them reduces greenhouse gases. Are you, are you using arguments now or putting forward various options now that you'd perhaps not even considered, say, you know, 20 or 25 years ago? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, also, because this is, of course, not a, you know a, a one solution fits all. If you go to you know a British farm where there are no vultures, yeah, uh, we, we are not yeah. if we are not really advocating this this system to be applied everywhere no, uh, no. because then you know that this could bring those un unwanted scavengers to come in and these problems. Uh, however, you know in in Spain where there are vulture populations, it doesn't really make any sense to spend millions of euros in collecting the carcasses when the vultures can do it very efficiently so um, we need to to, to adapt and and um, and work with legislators and with uh, uh, livestock breeders and, and and we are we are um, we are doing uh, we are doing that and uh, this is also one of the really the, the reasons why you know vultures are, are thriving in Europe in particular in Spain Spain has got 90% of Europe's vultures wow. uh, of, of all the four species Spain is the country for vultures in Europe uh, it has got uh, you know almost 3,000 pairs of Cinerius vulture it has got uh, over 1,500 pairs of Egyptian vulture uh, 
uh, over 30,000 pairs of Griffin vulture. And this is because this system, for example, in, uh, in Spain is valued by quite a lot of the rural agents uh, and the stakeholders that live in the Spanish countryside. And it's extremely important to have those stakeholders on board or these projects just cannot work, can they? This is this is probably uh, you know this uh, you know it is difficult or it is dangerous to uh, to generalize on things. But in fact, I'm ready to run that danger if I say that that is probably a general principle of conservation. You need to do conservation with all the stakeholders on board. That's that's the case with uh, with with vulture conservation. But that's also the case with. Um, with some of the projects, for example, the reintroduction projects that, that we uh, we have been leading on across Europe, the reintroduction of the birded vulture, the reintroduction of the scenarios vulture in the Balkans. Yeah. You need to have everybody on board because if you are going to put birds, if you're going to release birds, into somebody's backyard that person needs to approve and, and needs to support you because if it does not approve and does not support you uh, a multi-million euro effort can go down the drain in five minutes when that person picks up a poison bait or a gun exactly. and, and you know and, and and exterminates and exterminates that um, and and this also you know leads to to the whole whole different story which is actually the success of the for example the birded vulture conservation uh, reintroduction projects that we uh, that we are leading uh, across Un- Europe in actually bringing together many stakeholders uh, and and that is that is positive not for the birded vulture only but for the uh, for, for for the wider environment and for the wider ecosystem that is perhaps one of the added values of of our successful uh, birded vulture reintroduction projects uh, i always compare it with the wolf um, yeah you know yeah. the wolf is extremely divisive if you if you talk about wolves um, half of the room leaves or shouts at you for good or bad reasons but that's really the situation and to date unfortunately conservationists and other stakeholders have not really been able to establish um, effective partnerships a- around the wolf what we've been doing with the birded vulture is by using a, you know a more neutral species I would say a, a unique, a spectacular, and beautiful species. Other might say, "Oh, just a neutral species." <laughs> um, we have been actually uh, able to gather from hunters to livestock breeders, from tourism uh, agents to local politicians and authorities, to work for one objective: primarily the reintroduction of the birded vulture. But that ultimately actually deals with many, many important conservation issues in a positive and coordinated way that if you if you chose some other much more um, difficult species like the wolf, uh, you, yeah. would, uh, you would never you would never achieve. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, I, I, I like to say that, for example, our birded vulture conservation serves not only birded vultures, but actually serves the whole a mountain ecosystem because when we speak with with a hunter uh, or with a, a livestock uh, you know a, a breeder that has got uh, 4000 sheep uh, high up in a you know in a pâturage in, in the alps that will help the the wider biodiversity sure yeah I was just going to say it's far easier to halt a reintroduction in its tracks than it is to get one started Reintroduction is not an easy process, is it? Yeah. Reintroductions are an extremely expensive way to restore wildlife. 
and we only do reintroductions, uh, you know, <laughs> in the end of uh, of a process. Uh, I mean, the first thing is not to lose population so that we don't have to reintroduce them. Sure. And 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 all our efforts should be to retain what we have. However, uh, it is true that some species have been extirpated from some places, and the only way to get them back, particularly species which are not very migratory uh, or they are the species that usually you know stay close to uh, you know to, to, to their place of birth yeah. is to reintroduce them and and that's what that's what we uh, we've been doing and um, we've been doing with with birded vulture and we've been doing it with cinereus vulture and this is interesting to distinguish because we in fact we use two different methodologies in these in these reintroductions with the birded vulture we we do the reintroduction with captive bred individuals with the cinereus vulture we do reintroduction with wild individuals that that come from rehabilitation centers why do we use these two different methodologies well well, the population of some species is so low that we do not have individuals coming from wildlife rehabilitation centers in enough quantity to release in a sustained effort in a mountain. Uh, the population of birded vultures in Europe, the population is around 300 pairs. Uh, so it's still still very few uh, birds uh, in, in, in absolute terms. Yeah. Uh, every year, maybe four or five uh, are found by members of the public and taken wounded and taken to wildlife rehabilitation centers so even if we got a, every single one of those to 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 reintroduce back to to a certain place uh, we would have very very few individuals and no reintroduction project would survive with that and that's why many years ago about 40 years ago when we decided to reintroduce the species back to several uh, places in in europe we decided that the only way to do it was through captive breeding and we invested a lot of effort and a lot of time in in developing a a captive breeding stock and developing the captive breeding techniques uh, and, and this is really core to our work the, the work of the vcf we manage 80 uh, percent of the birded vultures that captive birded vultures that exist in the world wow 80 percent 80 percent there's about just over 200 birds captive and we manage 80% of those, most of them in specialized captive breeding centers that we ourselves run in a number of countries, but also by collaborating with some zoos and animal parks where we put those birds, where we send those birds that are under the care of the zoos or, or the animal parks with with a very, very you know strict guidelines. And whenever the, the offspring are produced, those offspring are put uh, uh, for, for conservation. We manage this captive stock purely for conservation purposes. It's quite complex because we need to uh, to, to deal with genetic diversity, of course, um, yeah. with, uh, you know, with sex ratio. We need to move birds across across borders. It was increasingly complex uh, last year um, during COVID times when borders closed and we and we had to, to move birds across borders to pair them, to adopt them, to release them. We fortunately managed to, to go around even COVID uh, strict measures. And Every year, uh, we we manage to release about twenty five birds wow. in our in our reintroduction projects. Now, with cinereus vultures, is different because, as I mentioned, the population of cinereus vultures in, in Europe has increased a lot, which means that every year 
tens of birds are actually found by members of the public, uh, weakened or wounded, that go into rehabilitation centers. Many of those um, are fit for release after you know a few weeks, one month, two months, and many of those would be released back in the, um, the places where they were found. Yeah. Now, we managed to establish agreements in particular with Spanish regional governments so that rather than you know release them there where the populations are doing well they they actually provide those birds to us and we release them in in reintroduction projects so we are for example taking cinereus vultures from spain in fact today uh, uh, we are transporting 22 cinereus vultures from spain to bulgaria where we are reintroducing them there and we are doing the same thing with a couple of uh, with with some some griffon vultures um, to restock very small isolated populations where the species is, is uh, you know, still has got some problems, notably in Sardinia and in Cyprus, where again, we are transporting, translocating and restocking with the griffon vultures coming from Spain, mm. from rehabilitation centers in Spain, the local populations there. What's the um, survival rate of reintroduced birds, Jose? Yeah, so, I mean, all this costs a lot of money, particularly with the birded vulture, where, uh, you know, where, of course, uh, all these techniques have to be really fine-tuned. You know, you can imagine that it, it is really a, a very long-term effort and, and it costs millions and millions. And we do not reintroduce birded vultures, of, or for that matter, scenarios vultures or, or griffin vultures, unless we are absolutely sure that their survival is high enough to achieve what we aim. So feasibility studies are absolutely needed in order to start reintroducing. But not only that, very often uh, we actually prepare the ground and do conservation projects against poisoning, uh, working against electrocution and collision to minimize and mitigate the threats so that when we release the birds there, the the, the probability uh, of, of mortality is minimized. Fortunately, in most of, of our reintroduction projects, their survival is very, very high. I can tell you that it reaches 90% after a few years. The first year is a little bit lower. Uh, so, for example, with the scenarios vultures in Bulgaria, we are having a survival of about 50 to 60% or a mortality of about 40%. Mm. And then it, 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 it rises to about 80 to 90% after, after they survive their, their first year. But we have, for example frozen reintroduction or restocking projects when the mortality hit certain thresholds until we corrected whatever was killing those birds so that uh, we could release them safely. All the birds that we release and and reintroduce uh, are tagged, usually with a coloring and, and in most cases also with a GPS tag. As a small device that we can put on the, on the back of the of the vulture that not only gives us you know real time information where the vulture is but will also allow us to find it should something happen to it and therefore uh, you know identify if it is mortality and and what exactly killed it uh, because this information is extremely important to know yeah. if yeah. Uh, we are successful or not in these reintroductions and and globally we are you know uh, there were no birded vultures in the alps We've started the reintroductions in 1986. In 1997, 11 years later, the first pair bred in the Alps again. Birded vultures take about 10 years to breed. And now there are about 60 pairs of birded vultures and their population is growing. 
That uh, must be so satisfying, Jose. It is. Yeah. We've re-established the species in, in Andalusia in the last few years, a uh, reintroduction project that started in 2010, so uh, 11 years ago. They've started to breed in the last few years, and, and there are now six to seven territorial pairs, of which four are breeding this year. And we are on the good way to achieve the same thing into other mountain chains in France and in Spain, where, where we are restoring the species uh, back to, uh, to nature. That's so inspiring. I was going to ask you, Jose, every story I, I read about vulture conservation and reintroduction seems to involve many organisations. It's a truly multi-agency effort, isn't it? But you've just explained why. I mean, it's it's a, a very complex procedure. You decide on an area, you have to make sure that area is safe, you have to get the birds there, you have to watch them while they're there, you, you're talking to stakeholders on the ground the whole time. It's this is a this is I'm going to say it again. This is a really difficult thing to do, and to have the success you've had, it's, it's just wonderful. This is as, as much about people as as it is about uh, you know about about vultures. Uh, I think we are the problem. <laughs> we are certainly the problem for vultures, but we are also the solution. With so many and, things. Know, yeah, and and when like-minded people get together and and, and work alongside, uh, there's wonderful things that. We, we, we can do and, and indeed I mean you know th this this is not this is not the work of, of the VCF uh, this is the, the work of the VCF and our many many partners protected areas local NGOs national NGOs uh, national governments, regional governments, veterinaries, wildlife rehabilitation centers. It is really multidisciplinary. For example, in captive breeding of, of birded vultures, you know that birded vultures have got this wonderful, well, wonderful, this unique uh, aspect of their breeding ecology. They, uh, they only raise one chick. They put two eggs, but they only raise one chick. Right. They've got what is called cainism. This means that the older chick, if the two chicks hatch from the two eggs, the older chick always kills the young chick. And this is an adaptation to uh, the environment where food is scarce. Yeah. Uh, if food is scarce, it's better that one chick survives rather than two poorly fed chicks. Uh, yeah. Chicks just starve, exactly. So, but what happens in captive breeding, though, is that it would be a waste not to use the second egg. So what we do is we actually take the second egg and give it for adoption to another birded vulture pair, which in captivity, which for one reason or the other lost uh, its egg. Uh, and this can be a thousand kilometers away. Uh, and this needs to be coordinated. So, you know, you can imagine it, st it starts very often like this, you know, a, a veterinary contacting a zoo under our coordination, transporting an egg to, an you know, uh, to, to be adopted by a pair which then raises a chick, which then uh, is sexed, its genetics are analyzed. So we decide where it makes more sense to, to release in Europe. Another transportation, in the meantime, some local organization has prepared a, a hacking cave uh, where this bird will be put three weeks before fledging. This bird needs to be fed at night to avoid human uh, contact. Um, so a complex logistical operation, which is usually done by, by our local partners, uh, many organizations across across Europe. Um, so, uh, you know, where, again, you know, local local livestock breeders and hunters need to be informed so, so, so they are aware that this is happening and, and, and they support the effort. Indeed, a, a multidisciplinary and multi-agency effort. 
that, as I mentioned, has been producing good results, not only for birded vultures, but actually uh, for uh, biodiversity uh, yeah. as, as a whole. And, and, and now we are having, you know, sometimes our wolf colleagues coming to us and saying, look, you know, we would like to convey this message to, to livestock breeders in, in that region. Can you please do that? Because we don't seem to be able to sit on, in the same room and talk. And, and I know that you talk with them, which, which of course we, uh, we do, but uh, it, it, is, it is remarkably an European effort. And, and in fact, I mean, look, this European effort was extremely evident in the story of, um, of Vigo. Yeah. The, the, the famous birded vulture that went to the UK. I was going to uh, ask you about Vigo, of course, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, birded vultures, uh, we now know because we've been reintroducing them, what happens is usually when they are two or three, they, they wander a little bit. Uh, we've had several individuals coming off the mountains where they were they hatched and wandering a little bit. They, they usually return to, to the mountains again, but in, usually in, in the second or third year, they, they wander a little bit, and some of them wander quite far and wide, particularly now that the population is increasing in the Pyrenees, and now there is a, a, a you know a, a re-established population in the Alps. The number of birds that are doing these, these trips across Europe have also increased in recent years. Yeah. So we've had in the last few years at least two birded vultures that, that went all the way to the UK, including one that uh, last summer stayed for over three months. And of course, it drew huge attention to this bird. Now, this bird was was wild. It was not reintroduced. Right. It was not reintroduced because it was not ringed. It did not have a tag. So we knew that it was not one of the birds that we have directly reintroduced o- over the last quite, quite a few years. The question there was still, where did it come from? We were, of course, engaging with some of the stakeholders in the UK, the protected areas, the wildlife trusts, what happens if the bird gets poisoned? What happens if the bird, does the bird have got enough food? We were, we were watching over. Our policy is that if the, if the birds are doing well, better not to mess around, let them find the food. But we were obviously monitoring it through the eyes of the thousands of people that, that went to, to, to see it. Uh, and then fortunately, somebody actually managed to collect. I mean, we, we put out discreetly the request. Uh, please, if you do find some feathers of this bird, let us know because we can actually analyze. Uh, we do have got uh, the alpine population very much mapped genetically. Right. And we can possibly find out if this bird is from the Alps or the Pyrenees and even where it came from in the Alps, even if it is a wild bird. Uh, so somebody discreetly found it, found two small feathers, which we've analyzed, and we've been able to pinpoint the exact nest where it was born. So this bird came from the Alps. It came from a, a nest in Haute-Savoie, in the French Alps, not very far away from Mont Blanc, the, the highest mountain in the Alps. From a wild nest, the parents of, of Vigo were one bird that we reintroduced many, many years ago, and another wild bird, and that are still breeding, and they uh, they are they are paired up. Um, Vigo f- had fledged in 2019, and then uh, one year later did that uh, that wonderful uh, trip to to the UK. It was seen flying back to Europe, yeah, and then it was seen in France twice. Uh, on the way to the Alps. So uh, we expect uh, it to be in the Alps. It is a bit difficult to confirm uh, with 100% certainty because, of course, the bird is not ringed. 
and now they they actually change plumage so it will be one year older now and the pattern of plumage has changed from last year so it will be a challenge to actually confirm 100% you know that Vigo is in the Alps but you know uh, my point here is that this was again a, a remarkable history of of international and multi-agency cooperation you know there were lots of British UK people British people British organizations involved uh, safeguarding and, and monitoring the birds we were contacting the researchers that you know that were doing the genetic analysis for all the birded vultures and that were ready to analyze the feathers um, we then uh, once we got a positive contribution we then got the history of the the breeding pair from the local French uh, NGO called Asters Conservatoire d'Espace Naturel de Haute-Savoie which have monitored that particular nest and that particular pair for many years and suddenly you know from researchers in Switzerland to uh, NGO in France to thousands of people in the UK they were all united with one bird that it's, flew it's uh, such a Europe. fantastic story now, what yeah. science can do these days I, I, yeah you've been doing it a very long time I expect for you being able to analyze the DNA from a feather and track it back to a nest in the Alps is, is probably every day. I, I don't know. But for me, that still seems such an incredible thing to happen. We've talked in the beginning of our conversation about the success of, uh, of, of vulture conservation in Europe. And indeed, it is a successful story. Uh, you know, uh, vultures in Europe are increasing. But why are they increasing? Because of four or five things. Uh, because we've got very good legislation. Um, a European Union Birds and Habitats Directive, and I do know that the UK has opted out of the European Union recently. Uh, you do have got very, uh, very good uh, national legislation as well. The regulatory aspect about, you know, carcass management. It, it is very important to have this this good legislation. Then a second very important, uh, a very important aspect is funding. The, the story of Vigo would not have happened without without funding. Funding to do the, the genetic research, funding to do the monitoring of the nests, funding to do the reintroduction. And, and, and funding is absolutely essential. And then the third key element is good research and good uh, monitoring and, and, and commitment from bird watchers and from conservationists. Um, and only having having really these these three things, you know, good scientific research underpinning conservation good conservationists uh, actually doing work in the field, legislation and money, uh, this results uh, in, uh, in, in, in success stories. Can um, I add one more, Jose, before you move yeah. on? They are very lucky, Vultures, too, to have such superb ambassadors like yourself, because that really matters as well. I mean, uh, well, yes, but it, it's 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 not only one person; it's it's hundreds of people uh, across, across Europe. I agree. I, I understand that, but I'm, your passion about vultures, especially bearded vultures, just comes across with every word, and that that's so important for a species like that to have someone. Whether it's you, whether it's your team, they're very fortunate to have such fantastic ambassadors. But, but, but you know why, Charles? Because because we see the results, and this is very important. Um, you know, we live in a doom and gloom society. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. everything is bad. Biodiversity is going down the drain. Climate, climate change, change yeah. climate change crisis, COVID. You know, th this doom and gloom that I think the wider society faced with COVID. 
was actually the norm in the conservation world. You know, when, when, when I was studying uh, and in my early years, the amount of, of negative stories, you know, these species going extinct, rate of biodiversity loss, I, I, it's no surprise that, that some of us got in, into the depression because indeed there is this, and, and we desperately need we desperately need good news. We yeah. desperately need yeah. examples yeah. of, yes, we can. Yes, we've done it. Um, that, that really is what drives quite a lot of us, is, is these examples. Is Look, we've done it. I mean, birded vultures are now flying in the Alps. We can do it elsewhere. We can do it with the Californian condors, and our American colleagues are doing exactly the same. We yeah. can do it with the Indian vultures that are almost extinct. And I think that, um, yes, we can do it uh, uh, factor, and we can do it now, uh, as long as we've got these, these elements that, that we've just discussed, you know, funding, science, commitment, legislation, government engagement. Sure. Uh, but, but, but it's clear, we need to have those. I mean, we cannot do it if we do not have got some funding. Yeah. And I keep and I keep telling people, look, this is possible because that there is fortunately some funding lines or some donations or or some corporate donations that allow us to do this. Without it, we would fail and yeah. we would not be telling this positive story. Exactly as you say, these positive stories are needed and they are really responded to very well. I, I was thinking then when you were talking about other birds of prey like white-tailed eagles and red kites here in the UK. Exactly. Those have been introduced. They've been a fantastic su success story and they've enabled people to talk about wider issues exactly as, as you're saying. We share actually quite a lot of uh, of our programs with with those people. We we share more and more with the red kite uh, people and the white tailed seagull because they are also scavengers. And being scavengers, they are also impacted by some of the uh, threats that that uh, that impact on on vultures, collision, electrocution, poisoning. Um, and in fact, we uh, we've got a lot of a lot a lot in common with, yeah. with those species. Um, one of your partner agencies, Jose, is Rewilding Europe. Do you see vultures as, a, as an incidental part or a critical part of rewilding? I, I do, as I do see white-tailed seagulls and, and, and red kites. And, and, and it's all about this scavenging. You know, it's all about this uh, uh, cleaning the countryside in a natural and sustainable way of, uh, of, of, of dead carcasses. Vultures, for example, thrive where there are predators. Yeah. And this is because predators kill wild ungulates. And by killing wild ungulates, they produce quite a lot of scavenging opportunities. They are uh, part of, of, of the, the, the cycle of nature, the cycle of life through this you know the, the recycling of nutrients uh, in you know in this case you know dead animals into biomass yeah. and therefore they are they are an, an, an absolutely part of uh, of uh, and that's why we we've partnered with them and they partnered with us in you know in in some of uh, of their projects in which they are trying to reintroduce uh, wild ungulates we discuss with them ways of making uh, those wild ungulates when they die in terms of habitat management more available to vultures what would be needed what are the opportunities and and so on so uh, without any doubt i mean vultures um vultures are as 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 the, the natural you know clean up crew of our yeah, planet yeah. they are an essential part of uh, of of this effort uh, for uh, for rewilding and i hope that uh, um, in the future more and more 
popular support will grow for, for vulture and generally speaking biodiversity conservation yeah. also because of this very, very difficult situation that we are all uh, you know, experiencing at the moment. Yeah. If um, areas are rewilded, could vultures naturally recolonize? I, I know you've said that most of the populations are sedentary, but you know, as, as we've just been talking about there, the bearded vulture Vigo that turned up in the UK, could vultures eventually recolonize other parts of Europe on their own or are they always going to need help? No, they can. And in fact, we've seen this. We've seen the expansion of breeding ranges in, in, in a natural way. Um, so, for example, the Cinerius vultures, they got extinct in Portugal in the 1980s. Um, and in 2010, they, they restarted to breed again. And, and this was just a simple geographical expansion of the nearby Spanish colonies. We've seen, for example, Egyptian vulture uh, colonizing Sardinia. The, the island was visited by a few individuals in migration. And then uh, a few years ago, a pair started to breed because uh, the food resources available in Sardinia uh, got uh, much better, uh, precisely because we changed the regulatory aspect of that carcass management that right. we were just uh, talking about. Mm -hmm. So this happens uh, without any doubt. Now, it would be probably very slow and with, uh, with a limited geographical uh, scope if we left it to, you know, to the birds themselves. So before the Cinerius vultures would reach Bulgaria, they are now in France, uh, uh, they would need many, you know, they would need possibly many hundreds of years, uh, assuming that the populations would continue to grow before that, that natural colonization, a reintroduction in, in this case, accelerates within our lifetime a process that would be, uh, that would be natural. But there is natural recolonizations and, and, and it's happening uh, in, um, in Europe. And, and again, I, I can give you an example. This year, we've had very good news from Morocco. Uh, griffin yeah, vultures. I read that uh, on your site. Yeah, yeah. Griffin vultures uh, started to breed there again, partly because uh, you know more and more birds come and go through uh, from Spain. Partly because some uh, some measures were taken to provide them with some food resources, and partly because some some mortality was probably minimized through some um, some action. So you know, after forty years without any breeding, we have had uh, this year now as we speak, some pairs are attempting to breed in in Morocco, and this is a you know a natural colonization and definitely continue to happen. Despite the threats they face, vultures seem, if, if I'm understanding all of this correctly, to be quite um, resilient. If they, they have are. an opportunity to thrive, I guess like you know many other species, they are able to take that opportunity. But that, that is the case with most biodiversity. <laughs> sure you know, is. Bi bio sure biodiversity is. is very resilient. And, 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 yeah. and, and that explains why, why we still have biodiversity. We've been, <laughs> we've been so mean. Despite so, everything so... we've thrown at it, yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, you know, we, you know we, we've really tried to hunt down the, the right whales from our oceans. And the fact that there are still a few left is simply because, you know, they are resilient. And if, if there is a tiny little improvement in, um, uh, in the situation, uh, they, they respond accordingly. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and vultures, that's, that's definitely the case. 
Fantastic. Um, Jose, the audience uh, for this podcast will probably predominantly be in the UK. So just as a final question, vultures aren't um, native to the UK. I, I don't think there's any evidence that they bred here, but could we birders in the UK one day see vultures in our skies? Uh, you can see more vultures as vagrants if um, if there are uh, more in Europe. <laughs> if, the, if the population in Europe continues to grow. Yeah. Now there's a few things that are missing in the British Isles uh, that are important for vultures: warm air currents. Vultures need, uh, you know, thermals. Yeah, we're uh, not blessed with warm weather here, are we? <laughs> you are not blessed with warm weather, and you are not blessed with mountains. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, and, and and vultures, you know, they, they are usually distributed around mountains for one good reason, because they really need to fly far and wide to forage for food because carcasses are not very abundant. So they need to fly hundreds of kilometers to find a few carcasses in the countryside to feed on. And for that type of flight, the soaring flight, they need thermals and they need mountains because the mountains are you know, conducive to, to, um, to produce thermals. So it's unlikely that vultures will colonize naturally uh, the UK. They will certainly visit, if, if populations in Europe continue to grow, they will certainly visit, you'll have, uh, you know, vagrant vultures. I'm afraid they will probably not stay <laughs> through the, you know, the the, the grey winter uh, no. and will probably no. fly south. <laughs> I had to ask the question, Jose, obviously, but uh, that was the answer I was expecting. Um, Jose, thank you so much for your time. I, I really didn't appreciate how much work has been going on and how successful it's been for you to be able to talk me through from the from the 1980s to the present and just realize just the the fantastic amount of work and the success that's going on is it's just so inspiring to hear I, i'm really very grateful to you thank you very much indeed well i i thank you i thank you uh, for the opportunity i'll leave you there but you're obviously getting busy Jose. yes thank you very much <laughs> thank you very much Dr. Jose Tavares, director of the Vulture Conservation Foundation, talking with me in early March. Jose will be taking part in the reintroduction and rewilding summit in April. In the meantime, there is, of course, much more about the inspirational work that the VCF are doing on their website at fourvultures.org. That's the number four followed by vultures. And you can follow them on Twitter also at fourvultures. As always, thank you very much for listening.